I don't know who gets emails or not, so I'll just by way of announcement uh, say a couple of things before we get into the Word this morning. First, uh, Miss Jean Brown, a longtime sweet, precious member of this body, passed away uh, this Thursday. There's a, a funeral service for her this afternoon at Rose Hill. That's the High School City Cemetery at 2 o'clock, and you're welcome if you knew her and want to celebrate her to attend that per the family. Number two, we are trying to assemble an Easter choir. Uh, choir's hard to pull off week in, week out, but every now and then, special seasons, you can blossom with a special choir. If you want to participate in that, we're going to meet Wednesday at 6.30. Our original plan to meet here this afternoon has changed, so take note of that. This morning, because it is a hard Sunday to stay awake, I've got three stories for you. Three stories that deal with um, what I call the ghost of every human soul. The ghost of every human soul and in relationships to other human soul. Everyone has it, whether you know it or not. It's called shame. This morning I want to share three, three stories. One from that book you hated in high school. The second from the Holy Word itself, and third from TV. Hopefully that'll keep you somewhat alert. But let's pray as we come to God's Word and consider this most vital and important subject of shame, the ghost of our relationships. Let's pray. Oh Lord, sometimes it's hard to be introspective, to think, Lord, about uh, Lord, the, the depth and the gravity of um, our, our hurts and our brokenness, our pains and our shames, Lord, we're so accustomed to uh, covering them up, uh, even denying them and deflecting from them. Lord, we're grateful that in the Lord Jesus, you have come and you're sitting with us in your arm around us. And we can't escape, Lord, your gracious attention to us. And so we pray that would, that would liberate us to come and, Lord, hear from your word and take note of this thing. We will deal with the entirety of our lives. Help us now to see Jesus in the midst of it, we pray. Amen. Story one has to do with the shame we all have, and I call it the shame that haunts us all. It was uh, June of 1682. A crowd gathered around the city square of the Massachusetts Bay Colony City, Boston, to um, summons to shame and mock and scold uh, a young lady who had had a baby out of wedlock. Her name was Hester Prynne. Hester Prynne uh, was sentenced to be insulted for two hours in the city square in stockades because she had had a daughter out of wedlock. She was offered a lighter punishment if she would just reveal the name of her partner in crime. Very interestingly, she's the one with integrity in the story. She doesn't do it. And that makes her punishment all the worse. And so the, the, the members of this, it was a theocracy, a religiously ruled city. The members of that council consigned her, ironically, 
to wear a letter on her chest for the remainder of her life, a, a red letter so that everyone could see it. I'm talking, of course, about the scarlet letter, the great work by Nathaniel Hawthorne, the greatest work of colonial literature. It says something about us. She was forced because she was a seamstress, a very gifted seamstress, to create her own label, a big A, for adulteress. That meant for the remainder of her life, wherever she went, that's all anyone would see of her. She had a daughter named Pearl, and Pearl was, of course, the love of her life. Pearl had become fascinated, almost obsessed with the letter on her chest, always rubbing on it and touching it and fascinated with that letter A. As Pearl grew up, she realized that she belonged to something of a scandalous mother. And so over time, she developed a real bitterness and anger, even a violent temper. She was so obnoxious in a sense that the town actually gathered to discuss what they would do with her. Well, fortunately, the, the minister of the town of the Congregational Church, a man named Reverend Arthur Dimsdale, stood up for Pearl and insisted that she be able to return and stay with her mom rather than being exiled and sent off to another town. On election day, Arthur Dimsdale stood in the pulpit and preached his most passionate and brilliant sermon. And then he revealed that he was her partner in crime. And immediately collapsed dead on the stage. And when they were preparing him, they were able to open up his cloak and his shirt and carved with a knife in his chest was a letter A. There you have a full-blown story about shame in all of its parts. Shame is that strange thing that all of us feel at some point. Shame is the belief that you, you are uniquely unacceptable because of something you did, like Hester Prynne. You sinned, and people know it. It also is caused by something done to you. Like her husband, who, by the way, when he came back to town, disguised himself and changed his name. He'd been humiliated. They thought he was dead. That's why she had the affair. Something you did, a sin committed, something done to you. Like a child who's been abused. A child that's been harmed emotionally, physically, they will bear shame. That is no fault of theirs. And of course, it is also the idea of being uniquely unacceptable just because of something you're associated with. You're a child. Your father lost his job. Everyone knows it. When you go to the grocery store, you dread who might be coming up the aisle. No fault of that person, just simply associated with it. That shame. You are uniquely unacceptable. Shame is so present in that story, and we see it, and we see it in our own lives. There's Hester. Her shame is forever in front of her. She's marked. She's labeled. A name has been assigned to her. 
It doesn't matter that as the story unfolds, you discover that she is, of all the people in that village, the most generous and charitable and kind. That takes second seat to the scarlet letter she wears on her chest. Poor Pearl, angry, violent, stubborn. Why? She's just such a bad kid. No. Her heart is scarred with that same scarlet letter of someone else's doing, merely associated with her. The husband of, of course, Hester Prynne, he disguises himself. He deals with shame by masking, changing his name, pretending to be someone else. And then, of course, Arthur Dimsdale, the religious and the holy figure in that, who is eaten alive with shame that he's had to hide. Had to hide because he lives amongst the townsfolk who've proven themselves that they enjoy gathering at the public square and taunting and mocking and shaming and humiliating someone who blew it. Why do they do that? Because they're filled with shame too. They mock because it gets the attention on someone else and away from themselves. That is what shame feels like. Shame is the feeling that you are uniquely unacceptable because of something you have done, because of something done to you, or because of something you're merely associated with, and there's an audience. Shame is, of course, inherent in the human soul. It is the very first reaction of Adam and Eve when they blew it. You remember? The first thing Adam and Eve did is they hid from God because they assumed because they had blown it, they would be uniquely unacceptable. The lever would be pulled and they would drop into eternal punishment forever. And they even absurdly covered themselves in fig leaves of their own making. By the way, the reason you wear clothes is because of shame. It's a unique thing about human beings. It's the covering, it's the hiding, it's the distracting that we feel because we feel uniquely unacceptable because of something we did, done to us, or associated with us. Sin, this shame is not itself a sin. Shame is a, a defense. It lets us know there's something in us that we're afraid or unwilling or unable to bring to Jesus and say, here it is, like Arthur Dimsdale, who torments himself, who in modern parlance, and which is quite a phenomenon today, is cutting himself, punishing and at the same time releasing the pain of his shame. One writer says, if you want to know what your shame is, ask yourself the question, what is it that I want to hide? What is it that I don't disclose when asked, how are you doing? Fine. Shame, unfortunately, eventually inhibits our love for God and love for others and love for ourselves, and that's why we bring it up in the context of relationships. So that, that is shame. You have it. You will have it till you meet the Lord. You will bear with it. 
You will disguise it. You will suffer with it. We, though, don't have hopelessness. We have great hope. Story number two. John chapter 4. In your bulletin, we've read selections beginning in verse 7. So read with me. This is story number two. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. You see, his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, how, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For, John edits, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered her, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said about yourself is true. The woman said to him, it's almost comical, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, that's the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The woman said, verse 25, I'm sorry, verse 23, but the hour is coming, he said, and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When He comes, He'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Verse 27. Just then the disciples came back and they marveled that Jesus was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Verse 39, the result of all this, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony He told me all that I ever did. Well, we get a couple of things from this story. First is, well, the shame that we hide. If shame is something that all of us are haunted by and it affects who we are, how we view ourselves, others, and even God, well, it's something to get in touch with. But one of the ways to do that is to discover just how creative we can be at hiding it. And Jesus, of course, is the miracle worker of coming and addressing us with both truth and grace. And in that we see our salvation poured out. Though we can't escape this reality, we do try. That's what the woman is doing here with Jesus. 
Normally, drawing water was a communal exercise. The women of the village would all gather together early in the morning when it's cool and go out to the well where, of course, they avoid the heat of the sun. But she's come alone at the hottest part of the day, and Jesus is sitting there with her. Uh, That says something about what she's doing. Uh, Normally, a a communal experience, she's being creative in separating herself. Why would she not go with others? Well, you saw her past, right? She's had what she called five husbands, and the one she's with now is not really her husband. In verse 9, you see some of her tactics to avoid the the sweet pierce of Jesus' stare into her soul. Verse 9, she immediately begins to say something about her culture and her race and her religion. The Samaritan woman immediately, as Jesus is nailing her and says, hey, I've got living water, she says, well, how are you a Jew talking to me as a Samaritan woman? She brings up a, a, a reality of that culture that Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. But it's a distraction tactic. She's labeling herself. She's labeling Jesus. Verse 17, it's interesting. She, she kind of gives her resume. She feels the, 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 to say to Jesus, I have no husband. And he said, you're right, you have no husband. She's trying to, again, identify and define and redirect Jesus. The funniest one, of course, is when she redirects him with spiritual talk. Jesus is sitting there. He is piercing into her soul, and her first response is to bring up a theological debate. Hey, you guys talk about this is the place to worship, but we worship on a different mountain. You go to that church, I go to this church. Distract, distract, distract. Finally, in verse 25, she actually defers. Jesus says, Messiah is here in front of you. I am the Christ. I am your hope. I am your life. Someday, I want to do right, the song says, but not right now. Don't you see how Jesus sees right through all of that? Jesus is unlike the rest of us where we can be duped or tricked and even use our shame to hide our our true pain, our true scars, our true past. We fear rejection. We fear, of course, being outcast just like Hester Prynne and just like this woman. But the point of the passage is to see how Jesus is unique. He comes to those who think themselves uniquely unacceptable and in a very unique way, addresses them with truth. He doesn't lie to her and say, oh, it's okay that you've had six very public, shameful lovers. But at the same time, He doesn't outcast. He doesn't send her away. Jesus knows something about this shame. She's hiding from others because she is full of shame. The reason she's promiscuous, the reason she has this track record of sexual sin is not because, you know, you're just the only person that does that. Here's a woman who no doubt pursued those things because she was empty inside. She needed the affirmation. She needed the praise. She needed the love. She needed the desire of others to say, you're okay 
I want you. You're somebody. She may have even been using them to make her feel special, to make her feel beautiful. She argues about other things, not because she is some self-appointed theologian. It's a tactic. If I can get Jesus' attention on some really hot debate, He'll stop looking into my soul. Of course, He doesn't. As one writer says, she was trying to steward a thirst that she had no power to satisfy. That's why Jesus says, I'm the living water. Shame, you see, with her is about hiding. Shame causes us to hide from other people, so it immediately disrupts our relationships. I can assure you, if you come and knock on our door and I invite you in, the very first words out of my mouth are going to be, don't mind the mess. We haven't had a chance to clean up yet. Why do I do that? Because I'm concerned about messes? No. You're going to see that I keep a messy house sometimes. And I want to distract you from that. I'm not going to be up front. What lies behind our obsession with gossip? Sharing a good, juicy tale and tidbit about other people. The reason we do that beyond pride and sin is because, well, it gets the attention off of us. If I can deal in other people's business, I don't have to deal with mine. It's the reason that we find ourselves boasting in those moments where no one asked, but we offer our resume to people. I have a dear friend Every funeral he gathers at, he has the greatest jokes in the world. He uses humor. And the reason is he's afraid to say, I hurt. I feel loss. Distraction. Shame, of course, is what uh, happens in the scarlet letter where the people maximize. It's very religious. It maximizes the sin of other people while minimizing their own sin. That's a very popular tactic. John Stott, one of the great ministers of the 20th century for sure, uh, said that he had a particular lady in his congregation who um, was constantly complaining, constantly criticizing. She didn't like the bulletin, the carpet, the music. She didn't like his sermon. She didn't like his illustrations. And she was letting him know it. And for a while, of course, it was becoming unnerving, especially as it spilled out onto other people. And then he realized what she's complaining about and criticizing is not the thing in itself. She doesn't wake up and go to bed at night thinking, you know, the most vital thing in the world is the artwork on a bulletin, the color of carpet, the tune of the song. That's not what she's obsessed about. It's a tactic. He realized her husband had died very young, and she had, she had children whom she had to raise on her own and she had to be very stern and strict, and now in their adulthood, they don't call her or visit her. She's got shame. And what John Stott was able to do was to every time she began to speak those words of harshness and bitterness was to close his eyes and in his mind say, you are so precious to Jesus. You are so precious. He realized it wasn't just her 
meanness. There was shame down there, deep down there. Shame, of course, makes us hide from ourselves. What do I mean by that? Well, we don't really want to get in touch with those kind of things. So we drink ourselves to death. We eat ourselves into a stupor. We pursue all kinds of addictions, whether it's sexual in nature, whether it's shopping for that I, one more pair of shoes, or whether it's gaming, which is, of course, entrance into another world. If I can alter my reality, says the addict, I won't have to deal with me. And interestingly, that just produces more shame because then you become the person they know as an addict. And guess what you're not going to do? You're not going to tell everyone, I need help. You have to carve in your chest those letters. There are unique phenomena amongst us today. You could call it the quest to disappear, anorexia, purposeful cutting, self-harm. I would even go so far to argue that the social phenomenon of transgenderism is precisely related to shame. May I disappear and become someone else. Some parents, of course, expel their shame onto their children. I will create them in my own image. You don't want to take piano? Guess what? I wanted to. You don't want to play baseball? Guess what? I didn't get to. You're going to do it. We can become perfectionists and controlling, and people around us can be irritated by it, but what's down in there is this shame, this hurt, this scar, this fear of not being acceptable or wanted by others. We can... Of course, like Adam and Eve, blame everyone and everything else. Why do we do that? We're covering something up. Those are hard words to hear, but that sets us up for the good news of this story. Ultimately, shame is hiding from God. It says to God that I don't believe your divine signature is upon me, so I'm going to cover it. And what Jesus comes to do is He comes to reveal to us once again you were created in the image of God. And His delight is upon you. And whatever He says about you outweighs what everyone else says about you, including yourself as you look in the mirror or you talk to yourself or you beat yourself up or you harass yourself that you can't believe a Christian would do blank. I can't believe I'm a grown person and I still suffer with blank. That's shame. Satan, of course, loves shame. And what he wants you and I to understand is that no one else on the face of the earth has your problem. So you better keep it to yourself. No one else has the struggle you have. No one else has experienced the kind of past you have. No one else has the scar tissue around your soul that you have. No one has those thoughts. No one has those desires. Shh! That becomes a petri dish for idolatry and shame. Jesus, of course, is not interested in the woman hiding her shame. He has to expose her. 
But you notice how he does it. And this is where the healing begins. Verse 28 and 29, the woman left her jar and went away and she said, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? (laughs) She is experiencing blunt force grace where Jesus has said, I know you. I know your heart. I know your struggles. I know your past. And yet I don't reject you. Truth and grace emanating from God. You need, to get, you need to get your eyes on what's happening here. As the Messiah exposes her, you have to understand that John is painting a portrait that is absolutely a miracle in that he portrays the perfect God in flesh, the God who is the holy king, whose throne in heaven resonates with peals of lightning and thunder. And the songs of angels gather around this Lord who's sitting there at the well with her. This majesty, this wonder, this beauty is sitting next to this woman with a scarlet letter. And He exposes her without mockery, without laughing, without going to another well, without shifting his seats, without passive-aggressive facial expressions, without snickers and jokes, without rejection. That's what makes the gospel something you and I can never fulfill. Her response is very interesting. Here is a woman who was hiding, and now she runs into the city. Do you get that? In the hands of Jesus, the one thing she assumed was her liability, the one thing that would keep her from service to the Lord in whatever way she conceived that, that is the very thing Jesus used to reach other people. It was a miracle. (laughs) The shamed woman who hides that we actually move houses to get away from and tell our kids, come in, get away. She's the one going and heralding, Jesus is the Messiah. He told me all that I ever did, and guess what? Did not reject me. It's interesting, too, the people uh, respond to that. And their response is, free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. You know what that means. To see her liberated in the hands of Jesus is Jesus goes to the bottom to say, you too, you too are welcome with me. He completely changes her life by dressing her shame. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, he had to wrestle with people that were making fun of him. Paul, we think, probably wasn't a very good speaker. Great mind. But the Greeks had this thing about public persona and rhetoric, and so that's what they celebrated. He wasn't. Probably stummered and stuttered and had to get his way. Probably not that physically attractive and so forth. And Paul at some point says, here's what the cross means. Others can't judge me. No one can put a label on me. But he goes a step farther and he says, I don't even judge myself. And it's that phrase that 
touches on the subject of shame because shame is this self-hatred and self-hiding and self-beating up. And he says, I don't, I don't trust my view of me. What do I trust? I look at the cross and I see this Savior who's able to tell me the truth. I had to die. You are not welcome. You are worse than you thought. And yet delighted to do so. Truth and grace. Story number three from TV. NCIS. Y'all ever watch that show? So here's what I get from the show NCIS, which means Naval Criminal Investigation Services. My takeaway is never join the Navy because there is a murder every week on this show. And not just there, there's one in Virginia, New Orleans, L.A. I mean, it's ran- apparently there is a murder crisis in the Navy. So every week there's this murder. In one of the episodes, there's a World War II veteran who feels guilty in some sense about surviving the war. And so he goes to the NCIS and he, he confesses to a crime that had been committed during World War II that had never been solved, a riddle, a soldier killing another soldier. Now, Jethro Gibbs, who's the head of that, doesn't really believe he did it, but if someone's fessing up, you're not going to turn him down. It's interesting that when the military police shows up at the office to collect him, they are rude to him. This old man, he speaks and they say, silence, do not speak until you're spoken to. They're ready to put cuffs on him and rough him up, this old man. And one of the, uh, one of the NCIS people, as those military police are scolding him and, and uh, berating him and threatening him, just pulls back the man's tie, and underneath is the Congressional Medal of Honor. And immediately, the military police stood at attention with a salute. (laughs) Everything changed. Everything about the way they viewed him immediately changed. That's the portrait. We began with a label on the chest that says, You are your sin. And we end with a story that encompasses what Jesus does with this woman and says, you have my medal of honor. I put it on you. That changes everything. The words we read in Isaiah 53 are so beautiful, so poetic, and so powerful, and they describe the very answer and cure for our shame. He was despised and rejected by men. That's what shame is. He was. For what? Me who deserves that? I'm accepted. I'm not rejected. I'm actually welcomed into the Father's arms. As one from whom men hide their faces. There's no better expression or definition of shame than to say, we have to hide our face from you. We even do it to ourselves. And here, Jesus says, the Father, as we sang, He's turned His face away so that you can look at the full gaze of His beauty as He dotes over you. Jesus was forsaken and excluded like Hester Prynne. Why? So that you can come back into town. 
You can walk back into the church. You can go to the grocery store and you're not worried about who's coming up the aisle and what they might know. He becomes our shame. His losing of face is our gaining of face. That's the healing of shame. May the Lord add His grace to our understanding. Let's pray. Blessed God, in these few moments we've had, we pray that You will help us, Lord. This doesn't get solved in our own personal experience. We will wrestle with this the remainder of our days, but You have healed it. and You have come, Lord, to take the shame that we all wrestle with, that ghost, and You've exposed it, and You mock it even as we mock our own selves. And we pray, Lord, by Your grace, You would liberate us like this woman. And we might be able to proclaim to those around us, He's told me everything I ever did and did not reject me. How about You? May that, Lord, resonate in our hearts, we pray. Amen.